0: Okay, so today's episode is going to be a little bit unusual, not that um, most of them aren't. But um, I thought I would do an episode that is honestly examining the weaknesses in the biblical case for universalism. And you might say, well, that's a strange thing to do because, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot. But if that's the price of, you know, more closely approaching truth, I don't mind doing that. And I don't like to be dishonest or to be seen as dishonest. Um, and so, you know, I I thought that I would just really take the other side as much as possible and, and make a case for, you know, um, particularism, not universalism, in the Bible. Try to make the case that, you know, um, whatever the philosophical and theological merits of universalism may be, the Bible simply doesn't give us good reason to believe it, but it does give us good reason to believe that there will be a a final division between uh, sinners and saved. Now, something that the process of examining the advantages and disadvantages of various biblical views um, has made me want or desire um, is a, a system of strikes that we can adopt when evaluating um, the merits and demerits of various biblical views. You know, the idea would be that if, you know, a, a view has a certain weakness, a certain assumption that it has to make about what's in the text, but which isn't in the text spelled out. Um, and I know the line between sort of direct indication and indirect implication is is sometimes a fine one, uh, to put it mildly. But nonetheless, um, you know, we can sort of distinguish between a a text positively indicating something and um, something having to rest on inference. And, um, you know, if we find ourselves having to make um, extra assumptions um, about a you know what's going on in the text, then we can say that you know there there should be a strike, you know against um, a particular view for every extra assumption or weakness that it makes. Now the downside to the system is I have no idea of how to weight the strikes, how to um, assign them, you know, different levels of severity. Although it does seem like not all strike uh, not every strike should count equally so you know i don't have such a system i'm not aware of such a system i don't think one could ever uncontroversially uh, develop such a system um but I, I wish there was one and you may hear me sort of use the language of you know that's a strike um but you know again i don't know how to weight them so i i can't ultimately say well you know this view has three strikes and that one only has one ergo uh, the form review is clearly the more biblical, but, you know, let's just be conscious going forward, you know, as a way of evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of, of different uh, interpretations that, you know, sort of the more additional assumptions uh, uh, an interpretation has to make um, or the more freebies it has to be allowed, the, the weaker it is. And so we have to keep a running record. Of these kinds of things as we um, evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of different interpretations. I think maybe a good place to start in this episode would be a discussion which I had with a friend. Um, I started by observing what what seems to me a weakness in the biblical case for universalism um, and I'll just kind of read what I wrote. Um, The Bible seems clear on sinners going to hell or at least some condition of punishment. I am curious about the parts where the Bible talks about sinners getting out afterward. Absent any such indication, it can be more plausibly argued that, you know, all should not be taken to mean all in those universalist sounding verses that talk about the restoration of all things and the salvation of all men. So where does the Bible talk like that? Um, It doesn't really clearly say anything like that uh, anywhere. I mean, there are parts where it seems to get close. I believe in Corinthians, Paul talks about, you know, how some will be saved, you know, their good works will be, they will withstand the trial of fire. um, And those uh, whose works do not will be saved, but as through fire or by fire, you know, um, and there's other, that other verse that Jesus talks about, like, everyone has to be salted by fire, but salt is good. So, you know, you get some kind of references here and there to like kind of cleansing fire, Um, you know, but there's weaknesses because, you know, if you talk about Corinthians, um, uh, he's arguably only talking to believers there. And the verse by Jesus, you know, that whole verse is is a little bit unclear. It really, to me, sounds as if they've taken different sayings and kind of mashed them together, but that's not a very high view of Scripture to say that uh, in that verse. But in any case, I'll grant that the meaning of that verse. Um, uh, everyone must be salted by fire, but salt is good. You know, that's 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 a, just a pretty unclear verse. In um, Peter, 1 Peter 3.19, I want to say, you know, you got Jesus talking to the spirits in bondage um, in the underworld, but, you know, what exactly that place and who exactly those spirits are, we don't know. Um, there's all different possible interpretations of that. Jesus says, "You will not get out until you have paid the last penny." A is he actually talking about the condition of you know afterlife punishment that one finds oneself in? Um, B is the condition that is attached one which can actually be met, or is it understood that that you will never be able to pay the last penny? You no, know, those are open questions. The some servants will be be beaten with many blows, and some with few. You know, um, David Bentley Hart sarcastically comments that we cannot imagine that, that uh, the author of that uh, text uh, was such a precocious mathematician as to expect us to envision greater and lesser infinities. Nonetheless, the question is, again, um, does that, does that um, refer to the afterlife as such? And also, is it possible that there are different levels of severity, uh, but which are otherwise equally temporally infinite conditions? Um, in the afterlife, you know, that's that's not something that we know for sure. Um, you have the beliefs in the early church um, that, you know, Jesus went into hell and rescued sinners there, um, including pagan sinners. And the discussion was often uh, not so much over whether this occurs, but who is saved in such a way. Um, a lot of people seem to think Socrates was saved like that. But that's not in scripture. So because right here, we're trying to be sort of good, biblical, Protestant, like um sola scriptura and toda scriptura kind of, kind of case. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about those Christian traditions, which are admittedly wider than the Bible. And I know the Bible is itself a product of Christian tradition, but we're sort of playing that artificial game, I suppose, here, where we maybe pretend it isn't. And that sort of almost like the 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 Quran it just eternally has existed you know in this form and dropped out of the sky as a as a complete and perfect work I'm being a little bit unfair there but you you get the idea now another verse that um, a universalist could um, rest part of his or her case on um, is First uh, Corinthians 15:20 and following you know there's a lot of ammunition there for a universalist but the trick would be to, you know harmonize it with the rest of scripture and interpret it validly with the rest of scripture um because it says for as in adam all die so in christ all will be all will be made alive you know notice same word is being used in the same verse um you know that's such a strong um component of the argument that, that particularists or infernalists make from Matthew 25 is the same word, whether Ionios means forever or just of the age, doesn't matter because it's the same word referring to the life and the punishment. Well, here we have the same word referring to, you know, um, the, all, all, the, all the fallen and all the saved. So what then? So, you know, we have to hold these and, you know, we, we have to be careful. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits. then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So this seems to speak of almost two, uh, I don't know, inflection points. Um, you know, well, the first was the resurrection, and then when Christ returns, um, then the faithful uh Who have fallen asleep in in Christ presumably are resurrected, and then um, they reign, and then um, the end comes, whereafter God is all in all. What does it mean to be all in all? You know, annihilationists would say that um, all existing things, um, you know, obey the will of God and and glorify Him, and so on. Um, The problem is that it says uh, Christ must reign until you know, every enemy is defeated, the last of which is death, you know, then comes the end and God is all in all. How are God's enemies held by that which no longer exists? That's a problem passage, it seems to me, for annihilationism. You can be sort of a Calvinist believer in eternal conscious torment and believe that God is all in all. Um, you know, even during uh, the, uh, or even given the damnation of some, precisely because he is glorified by the eternal damnation of some sinners. Not that there's too much scriptural support for that idea when you go looking for it, but I mean, you, you can take that view. So, but anyway, the point is, um, we seem to see uh, even death itself destroyed, um, and then, you know, God is all in all. And assuming that does not mean um, that sinners are in hell forever, eternally rebelling against God, um, you know, as on the Arminian view, then uh, it it seems like what that means is that everyone, you know, is saved and every knee is bowing and every tongue is, you know, joyfully confessing uh, as opposed to like begrudgingly uh, or bitterly confessing. So maybe you could make an argument from that verse that, you know, that's, that's the implied point where uh, people get out of hell. And the advantage to such an argument would be that unlike the, the imagistic parables um, of, of Jesus' sayings in the Gospels, and unlike the uh, dream, the vision that Revelation is, that really nobody knows uh, you know, what to make of it, uh, this is neither of those things. This is actually, you know, this seems like doctrine. This seems pretty like clear, straightforward stuff. So maybe we ought to interpret what is less clear in terms of what is more clear. You know, you hear that, um, you know, sort of principle bandied about uh, quite often by uh, biblicist uh, exegetes. But um, here's, here's the next question. How do we hold this verse um, together with the other verses that we have in the New Testament? You know, in particular, Matthew twenty-five. Let's let's turn there. Um, uh, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left. Um, and skipping a little bit, you know. Uh, then he will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire," or you know, punishment of the age. You know, it can be translated differently. Ionios does not simply mean eternal. In fact, most of the time, you know, that's the Greek word being used here. Most of the time, it means expressly not eternal. It's it's bounded. It's an age. It's an interval. It's used more often to indicate you know, temporariness, but it can mean. Or seem to mean eternal when used of God and the things of God. So it's a tricky word. Depart from me, you who are who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, uh, uh, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the first question I have about you know these verses in connection with First Corinthians is which um, sort of judgment point is that? Um, you know, because it says, "When the Son of Man returns in His glory, this is going to happen." It sounds more or less immediate, but maybe not. Um, you know, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then, when He comes, those who belong to Him. So, is that the Matthew twenty-five moment, or is it um, is it the end? Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power one can make a credible argument you know for it for it being the the second point even though it doesn't really happen sort of immediately afterward i mean maybe it happens well it happens after he comes see so there there's there may be sufficient justification there for you know saying when the son of man comes you know then uh, the end will come and you know that's judgment being envisioned and i think you sort of have to see it like that if you're going to hold it together with Revelation, um, for reasons I'll get into in just a second. But first, I want to explain why that's important. Uh, If Matthew 25 is sort of at that first resurrection, um, then you can say, well, you know, the punishment of the age um, lasts only as long as that first age, you know, the sort of the age in between um, Christ's coming and the end. It's not the age of ages that happens, you know, after the end. Although, you know, the period after the end is often described as the age of ages. So it's not really like there's simply one age. It's an age of ages. So, you know, maybe we should be careful about that. I don't know. But um, I think if we're trying to hold all these verses, we're trying to hold 1 Corinthians 15 and Matthew 25, uh, together with uh, Revelation, we have to say Matthew 25 is a judgment occurring sort of at the, at the second point, at the end, the second death, if you like, because Revelation 20 describes the first death in the following way, or the first resurrection. Um, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So based on that, one thinks that, you know, this isn't the Matthew 25 moment. Even though the way that is worded, you know, the Matthew twenty five, you know, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, it might give give you the impression that it happens more or less immediately thereafter. Um, that might not be the case. It might happen afterward, and as a, as a result of that condition of His return being fulfilled, but it, it, it might not be immediately afterward. If we're holding it together with you know First Corinthians and Revelation, so what follows if we if we view you know the judgment described in Matthew twenty five. Um, as applying to the end well you, you know then we could more plausibly argue as a particularist that you know the even if you translate it as the life of the age and the punishment of the age that age is like the age of ages it truly does not end so there absent any indication of people like getting out of hell um you know um the universalist assumption that despite um you know, people entering into um, a punishment of the age, of ages, um, they get out, you know, after the punishment has done its uh, corrective work, you know, we have to count that as a strike against universalism because nowhere does it say that people, you know, get out of that condition. You could argue perhaps it's implied by God's love that, you know, that punishment is corrective rather than retributive rather than infinite, despite, you know, the transgression being finite. But you can't really argue from the text itself anywhere and say, well, yeah, they go into that condition, uh, the punishment of the age or of the age of ages. But then when they're, you know, clean or reformed, then they get out. It's just not really any verse that clearly seems to say that of the final judgment, or the second death. And, you know, the, the most vivid sort of portrayals we get of that are in Revelation. The problem with Revelation is that, I see, I almost want to split the analysis of, you know, whose interpretation of the Bible works better, you know, particularists versus universalists into two conditions, one where we include Revelation and one where we don't. And you might say, well, why on earth would we exclude Revelation? Uh you no, that doesn't sound like a very sola scriptura and tota scriptura thing to do. Um, and I will just say, first of all, the reformers like Luther, uh, Luther seemed to want to take it out. It's a book of dubious canonicity. It's it's always it's, it's whether it should be part of the canon has always been debated. Luther seemed to think it shouldn't be there. He had a low opinion um, of of Revelation uh, until well, I think he had a low opinion of it. And then it seemed like he discovered that uh, Revelation could be read allegorically in such a way that the beast refers to um, the Pope, and then he saw that it might have some, I don't know, rhetorical utility. Calvin, despite being a voluminous exegete who commented on every other book of the Bible, didn't comment on this book. Um, It's not read um, uh, in the Orthodox Church, although... um, elements of the book find their way into the Orthodox liturgy. And, you know, it's not too hard to see why people would have doubts about this book. Like, my doubts about this book are that if we're really reading it in terms of the author's intent, it really seems like it was something which he envisioned happening in his own lifetime. There's all kinds of evidence for that. Don't seal up the scroll. These things are going to happen soon. And people say, well, you know, for the Lord, a year is as a uh, thousand. a day is like a thousand years or a thousand years or like a day something like that well still even if they're saying these things are happening soon but from god's perspective not yours what period of time would be long for god <laughs> so it is not it's not it's like either it's that's there for literally no reason or it means look john really expected it to happen soon the latter is a much more plausible view we have to at least say if if the angel is saying these things are going to happen soon from God's perspective, but admittedly, there is no period of time that would be long for God, you know, at a minimum, we have to say that's a strike against, you know, whatever interpretation of revelation would say that. So, you know, my problem with the book of revelation is, is like, it feels like we're almost determined to read some correspondence between whatever eventually happens uh, uh, and the book of revelation, you know, into revelation, but if we were similarly determined about literally any other text, you know, including an uninspired text, you know, like a Nostradamus prophecy, we could we could, you know, with with roughly the same level of plausibility, we could you know, read some correspondence in and say that, you know, this Nostradamus prophecy or this um, science fiction novel uh, was like an inspired prophetic work. You know, the thing is if there are no constraints on interpretation, if the interpretation is so plastic uh, uh, as to deny the text any chance of failure whatsoever, it becomes sort of useless, at least prophetically, not in other respects, arguably. But, you know, if you're going to view Revelation as, as bearing on eschatology, then you're going to um, view it, uh, you know, as still having yet to occur, because, you know, presumably the final judgment, you know, has yet to occur, the second death, you know, the big white throne judgment and the end of history. That hasn't happened yet, you know, as far as I know. And so it it seems that to, to read Revelation as being about that, we have to assume that what it's describing has yet to take place, you know. Um, but, you know, that's at odds with how the author saw it, because um, the author didn't envision these ev- events as happening 2,000 plus years into his future. He envisioned them as happening very soon within his own time. So, Um, you know, it, we're going to get into like a universalist reading of revelation and I'm going to be pointing out what I think are the flaws in that. Um, but you know, with the caveat that I don't know what the good reading of revelation is, at least, you know, I don't know what a good reading of revelation is that, uh, earnestly imagines it as occurring in in our future and therefore pertaining to the actual final judgment. So that's going to be a a general thing, I think, also to take note in this episode, to take note of in this episode, that just because I'm pointing out the weaknesses in a universalist case, it shouldn't necessarily imply that, um, you know, the biblicist case for, you know, annihilationism or eternal conscious torment are just without weaknesses. Um, Because I think that, you know, there's always a lot of hole patching that goes on whenever we take like this kind of, um, really strong fundamentalist, biblicist, you know, uh, interpretation of, you know, the texts. And, and as an example, I would cite, like, you know, in, in Matthew, Jesus really seems to be saying that the end, you know, his return is coming um, in the lifetime of, of the generation of those listening to him. If we're being real serious exegetes, you know, looking at the you know intent of the author and looking at the plain language, quote-unquote, I don't know how you can walk away from what C.S. Lewis called the most embarrassing verse in the Bible with the idea that, you know, no, Jesus really meant it was going to happen like 2,000-plus years in the future. And, you know, and there's all the kind of contradictions that you find in the Gospels that Ehrman is so fond of pointing out. You know, any, any sort of Biblicist's case you know, for whatever for whatever view, any particularist view, ECT or annihilationism, is always sort of patching over these holes as if they aren't there. But if we're honest about the holes being there, that kind of maybe makes us, maybe should make us more wary of, of leaning on such a uh, hard-nosed and literalist, you know, interpretation of these texts. And, and maybe um, we should be a little bit more spiritual, in which case it's uh, less inappropriate, shall we say, to bring in the theological and philosophical um, considerations um, in our interpretation. So anyway, with all that being said, I want to turn now to a consideration of Revelation and see whether, you know, it supports the particularist or universalist um, readings. Just to know what verses we're talking about, um, I think I'll start reading at Revelation um, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So first note, you know, just the very idea of a book of life. Like, what's the point if everyone's name is actually written in the book of life, of having a book of life? Presumably, you know, some people people have their names written in it and some people don't. You know, whether those whose names are recorded in it um, were for, um, let's see, you know, whether they were merely foreknown from the beginning of time or whether they were sort of uh, Calvinistically predestined is not really the point. The point is that there are some, you know, saved whose names are in and some um, unsaved whose names aren't. And nowhere does it talk about anyone's name being added to the book of life um, in Revelation. And that needs to count as a strike against any view of Revelation, which would um, see it as uh, portraying um, anything like an opportunity for post-mortem salvation. Uh, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then it talks about the the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And um, one of the things that I noted on rereading it, well, it took another commentator to help me see this, but it's actually a giant cube, which is interesting. I never really caught before how it's actually as tall as it is long and wide. So anyway, I thought that was just an interesting aside. Um, I think it's also worth noting that the cube wasn't always there. It comes down... And you know, that can explain references to um uh people entering into it. I used to have trouble making sense of that before because it seemed to me that in reading Revelation, you know, there's only two locations in its visionary geography, you know, to borrow a phrase from Robin Perry. You know, there's inside the the New Jerusalem, uh, you know, i.e. the condition of being saved, and there's outside I e the condition of being a dog, an idolater, a practitioner of magic arts, etc. But then later on, it talks about how um, you know the kings and the nations enter into the New Jerusalem, despite the fact that you know every previous mention of the kings and nations has been negative. A and B, it's understood from the text that um, you know no nothing impure can enter the city, uh, and the condition of entry is that one washes one's robe one one's robes in the blood of the lamb. And so um, even if one does not assume it's it used to seem to me that even if one does not assume that the kings and nations are, you know, redeemed from, you know, the the bad people that they used to be, um, and are now good, because they sort of took some post mortem opportunity to repent and wash their robes in the blood of the lamb, even if you don't assume that and you just assume, well, they just sort of appeared out of nowhere. The question is, where's this third zone in the, in the visionary geography of this text, you know, because it seems to be pretty binary and restrictive. There's in the city and there's out the city, you know, there's saved and there's not saved. There's not this third zone where people can come in despite not being in the lake of fire. But then I realized, you know, like we're, we have a description of the cube coming down. And so, presumably, like, the entry of people into the cube sort of refers to, you know, the point in time at which, you know, they they enter the cube after it, you know, comes down from heaven, because it wasn't always there. It, it has to be entered at some point. And then the only assumption that one need make is that the kings and nations that enter the cube are just good Christian kings and nations, despite the fact that, well every previous mention of kings and nations in the text is, is negative. So that's that's a strike, but um it's not too implausible. And and, and that's um that's been a, a common reading of of, of Revelation I, I think to think that the, the nations that walk in the light of the New Jerusalem and um the kings um who enter in um are just, you know, uh Christian Kings and nations now. So, anyway, what's the universalist reading of this text? I'm borrowing heavily from Robin Perry here. Um, Let me just read a little bit from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So, again, you know, Perry looks at the nations because, you know, previously every mention of them has been sort of negative, that these these are people who were formerly on the outs, but now they're redeemed, and being healed by the leaves of the tree. Um, with, you know, by making an assumption, which, you know, is admittedly not indicated in the text, one could say, well, no, those nations are just Christian nations. Um, they came into being sort of during that first Kiliastic period, um, uh, reign. Um, you know, when, when Christ returned and the saints were resurrected, um, that's when the Kings and nations, the good ones sort of came into existence perhaps, and they were not thrown into the lake of fire, presumably, uh, during the, uh, the, you know, the, the big final judgment, the second death. So anyway, you know, different views. Um, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Uh, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And it also talks about the gates never being shut. And then we can jump ahead to verse 12, um, or verse 14, Uh Blessed are those who wash their robes, the the implied speaker is Jesus, um, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So, you know, this, this is a hard text for annihilationists because it doesn't seem as though the people who were flung into the lake of fire were actually destroyed. Um, and from this verse, it almost seems as if there's an invitation being extended to them uh, to enter the city, because who is outside the city but, you know, uh, the damned? Uh, you know, this is at the end of Revelation. Presumably all the good people have already entered the city, one thinks. You know, already I, this sounds like over-interpreting the language, but, you know, this is kind of the Biblicist way of doing things, it seems to me. So anyway, it sounds like there's an invitation being ex- extended to the dogs that, you know, uh, come in and wash your robes anytime, or wash your robes and come in anytime, have, um, have a drink, um, uh, be healed um, by the leaves of uh, the trees. Um, because again, there's only like two places, uh, you know, in this geography, there's inside and there's outside, who's being invited except those outside, you know, that's the universalist reading. Note that even this reading uh, it, it has it has lots of problems if you ask me, but even this reading it, it still kind of clashes with first corinthians um, uh, fifteen because first uh, Corinthians fifteen envisions you know the condition after the end as one in which God is all in all uh, this these verses envision the condition after the end as a condition in which there is still a final division between um, sinners and saved, even if uh, the sinners have sort of uh, an infinite number of opportunities to come in um, out of the cold or out of the heat, as as the case may be. So, you know, that, that doesn't match. Even if we interpret Revelation 22 as, you know, uh, uh, talking about... Um, sinners in the lake of fire um, having uh, an opportunity for post-mortem repentance and redemption, it still doesn't really match, you know, 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians 15 seems to talk about the end as a condition in which God is all in all. And here, it's like, um, it's the end, but um, it we're, it's understood now that maybe just piecemeal, little by little, the sinners come in over time. It doesn't really sound like God being all in all, at least not yet. But in any case, now I'm going to talk about um, why I don't think that Universalist reading uh, of Revelation is the best reading. Okay, so let's remember that the first point made in the Universalist interpretation of Revelation is that you have the kings and nations entering the city, which would imply that they... um, availed themselves of some kind of post-mortem opportunity uh, for repentance and redemption, uh, some opportunity to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I would argue that the reason you have the reference to kings and nations entering the city is that the city wasn't always there. It came down out of the sky, and so at some point they had to enter it. Now, granted, Every previous mention of them does seem to be negative. So it is kind of um, reading something into the text to to say now that, well, the the kings and nations who enter the city um, are actually good Christian kings and nations. But sort of that's the only um, strike that I need to incur against this view. Uh, I think it'll be smooth sailing from there. In Revelation 22, um, if we read the whole thing, uh Well, if we if we read a little bit more, starting from verse six twenty 6, the angel said to me, the, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. And I will admit those words sound a little bit Calvinist for a uh consistent interpretation of revelation i think one could do worse than a calvinist um uh, eternal conscious torment um uh, view look i am coming soon my reward is with me and i will give to each person according to what they have done i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, it seems to me that from uh, 20 to eight, um, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. Had been showing suggests, I mean, I'm, granted, I'm reading it in the NIV. I don't know exactly what the Greek says. But it had been showing them to me sounds like the vision is over. It sounds, sounds like these things are no longer being shown. The dogs outside the city, the sinners, are presumably no longer around to hear the invitation that is extended. It sounds to me like the invitation is extended to believers hearing or reading the book of revelation, you know, in their present moment in time. I used to be confused by the reference um, to entering the city. Cause I thought it's like, again, it's like the only people who could plausibly do that are the people outside the city, you know, the sinners. Um, but so I thought maybe it's issuing some kind of weird invitation um, to enter like, through time rather than through space but you know now i see like well maybe it's referring to like you know the moment when that cube comes down out of the sky it's like you'll either be able to enter it or not um and so you know do these things now keep being good unless you're bad in which case keep being bad but you know keep (laughs) keep being good so that you can um you know enter in the city when it when it arrives I would also note that nowhere in the book of Revelation or even in the entire Bible as far as I know do you ever see references to books being uh, to, to names being added to the book of life. You see references to them being blotted out, but never to their being added. If it was like a truly sort of calvinistic book of life, one imagines that names would neither be added nor blotted out, but that that may be a separate matter. So for what it's worth, I I think this particularist reading of Revelation is more plausible. Um, That being said, I don't want to give the impression that, like, you know, the universalist reading is wrong because there's a good reading of Revelation and, you know, that one is right. It's not clear to me that my own reading is actually right. Because, again, I want my reading to be about our future in which, you know, the final judgment takes place, takes place in our future because it hasn't happened yet. I want I want all this stuff to be happening in our future. Notice all the stuff that I just read too in the in the same verses that this is all gonna happen soon. Oh, did I mention it's gonna happen soon? It's happening really, really soon, guys. Don't roll up the scroll. It's happening soon. What what whatever happened to that? Um, and if I'm just gonna ignore that and still continue to read it as if it were some kind of literalist uh Uh, you know, movie film description of, you know, what's going to happen in the future. It seems like, you know, that that, there's kind of a problem there. And maybe that reading still isn't as bad as the universalist one, but it's still bad enough that it makes me think that it's not the right one. So what is the right one? Maybe it's an idealist and totally spiritualized interpretation of revelation. And, you know, um, If we're taking a totally spiritualized approach to this text, it it seems to be, uh, you know, lower resolution. And it seems like uh, we can't use it to confidently rule on, you know, eschatological disputes or questions. Uh, Ditto if we take a uh, totally preterized or, you know, in the past um, approach to the book of Revelation. The point I would make here is that um, if, if all the constraints are removed, then, you know, whatever moves one makes, you know, in the interpretation of Revelation, you know, however much freedom or leeway the particularist has, the universalist always has an equal amount and can always use it to construct a universalist reading of Revelation, uh, regardless of how many assumptions they have to make in the process. And the point is, given near-infinite freedom, anyone can construct almost any interpretation of it that they want. So anyway, in conclusion, I don't really know what to make of the book of Revelation. I find it hard to see it as being about um, the final judgment unless we allow that it was simply wrong in a few respects. But then if it was wrong in those respects, what other respects could it be wrong about? Uh, You know. But see, if it's not about the final judgment, I don't know what it is about. Again, universalist readings of Revelation are bad. It's like, okay, I, I can agree with that, but I would like to see a good reading of that book. Partial preterists often imagine that they have, you know, good principled readings of Revelation. Like it, it started, you know, it has, it started soon after John wrote the book, but it's still underway. The problem with partial preterists is, again, they they have it, their, their basis for deciding between which events are literal and which are figurative, you know, and, and the, the sequence of events described in Revelation is, you know, it, they, don't, they don't have a principled basis as far as I can see for, for, for making those distinctions. It's kind of interpretive silly putty. Yeah, I'll interpret this figuratively because I couldn't find a real literal event that corresponded to it, but you know, this I'm gonna assume is literal and and, and so on. It's just again, however much freedom you get should ideally also be um extended to one's opponent. So uh you know, to the extent that it's legitimate to do this, and I know it seems wrong to throw away an entire book just because it happens not to support your theology but to the extent that we leave revelation out and sort of let the, the duel between particularism and universalism, uh, occur between, you know, those, those texts, uh, from the gospels that sound like there's uh, a final division, uh, uh, a final and eternal division between, um, the saved and the damned. Um, and, uh, Those verses from Paul that sound like everything is restored, that speak of a restoration of all things. And of course, there are also verses in the Gospels themselves that, you know, talk about all men being saved, you know, and I, when I am lifted up, will drag all men to myself. You know, the question here is something like, does all mean all? Does all really mean all? Does forever really mean forever, etc.? There are many instances in the Bible where forever just clearly does not mean forever, and that's assuming that Ionios even does mean forever. And and so, you know, as you can imagine, these these bait, these debates sort of go on forever. Um, you know, there are also verses from Paul that don't sound universalistic. Um, I wanna say, what is it, Second Thessalonians uh uh verse nine, chapter one, verse nine, um, where Paul talks about uh you know, when Jesus returns, sinners are gonna be punished. Uh, with with ionios. did he say destruction or punishment? I don't even remember the Greek word. Um, well, again, the question there is: are, are we talking about that that age between when Jesus returns and the end, or are we talking about the age after the end? I don't know, because because the, the word is not eternal destruction or punishment. It's Ionias uh, uh, punishment or destruction. Let's look it up. Hold on olethron eonion is of destruction eternal so that's a strong word still though it's not totally incompatible with um universalist interpretations you know as it isn't incompatible with you know eternal conscious torment interpretations in this connection let's let's read this quotation from uh from david bentley hart paul for instance seemed at times to envisage the destruction of the wicked along with the present aeon and other times to be seized with a vision of creation that requires the absolute redemption and glorification of all things by the direct presence of God. The question is, which of these two possibilities can better explain the other? The former would seem to reduce the latter to vacuous hyperbole and false hope. The latter, however, can conceivably explain the former in terms of a a harsh purification that destroys the sinful self for the sake of the resurrection of the redeemed creature. So that's sort of a good point by Hart. You know, if we interpret uh, destruction um, as, you know, referring to the sinful self, uh, we, we can theoretically hold more of Scripture together. However, the analysis that Hart offered there took for granted that um, the New Testament uh, does not have a single unified theology across all of its books or across all of its authors. And if we're biblicists, you know, then... We shouldn't like that assumption. As Hart said earlier in that in that text that I was quoting from, um, he, he felt like Paul doesn't always have a consistent theology. Then again, there's also the issue of whether 2 Thessalonians 1 9 is an authentic Pauline letter. It's not one of those which are uncontroversially attributed to Paul. Um, or is it a forgery, as Dr. Bart Ehrman thinks, but then again... If, if it's a question of real or fake, Ehrman always seems to come down on the side of fake, so, you know, who knows? Even if it wasn't by Paul, you know, it's in the corpus, and we could say it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit. The move that Hart makes is, is again, to, to take the, the universalist-sounding verses um, very seriously and say, you know, these are, these are clear doctrine. Uh, the statements about hell... Um, conversely, are not statements about some metaphysical location. They seem to be symbolic. You know, they're, they're statements about Gehenna, which is a kind of symbol for something. And who knows if that if that's just, you know, this worldly destruction, you know, as as occurred when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, not too long after the events of the New Testament, or if it's, you know, some kind of, you know, metaphysical condition of suffering. But the point is, didn't but the point is, according to Hart, that Jesus didn't speak of hell as such. Um, he just spoke of judgment, basically, but he spoke of it in images and parables. And when we have um, something clearer, uh, something more like doctrine from Paul, um, uh, the former should be interpreted in light of the latter and not vice versa. You know, that's that at least is, is, is Hart's um, reading. Anyway... Um, It seems to me like if you take Revelation out, you're at something of an impasse. And if you leave Revelation in, then the texts are decidedly in favor of particularism. Uh, And all that being said, it doesn't really look like the the textual case for universalism is all that strong um, because you kind of have to uh, rest more on implication and inference. And I was talking with a friend the other day, and he said, you know, the same goes for the Trinity, but we don't say that it's not biblical. So I thought, well, you know, that's a good point. Um, now, you might say of the Trinity, well, first of all, it's like, who says that that rests on implication and inference? Well, what I mean is there's no verse that says, you know, God is three persons in one being or three hypostases in one usia, or even a verse that says there are three who bear record in heaven. Um, If you're a King James Version onlyist, you will say, no, that is a verse that is really there. Um, But, you know, critical scholars, the the newer translations of the Bible, like the NIV, don't have that verse because it's not in the earliest, best manuscripts. It seems like an interpolation. So the point is, the Trinity, we don't say it's unbiblical, but it is a construction and a bunch of inferences from verses in the Bible rather than um, something which proceeds from like one or two clear verses. I have a friend um, who is a biblical Unitarian, and if I use this argument on him, he's not going to be very convinced, because he's going to say, well, you know what, I, I don't believe in the Trinity precisely because I, I don't think you can really clearly read it out of the Bible. But my friend is also an uh, an annihilationist or conditionalist, and as far as I know, you know, he has to, that means, okay, I can't use the Trinity analogy with him, but he still has to deal with revelation. Um, I don't quite know how an annihilationist would respond to it. I've seen some responses. Um, The point is, you know, whatever they do, they're going to end up with some strikes. And as far as I know, I'm in a similar boat. Uh, You know, it's like, I think the case would be better if Revelation were not around, (laughs) but it is. Um, And then, you know, I guess we take the debate from there. So, you know, I I don't really know what to do. But you know, the the point that my friend was making is that there's a lot at stake, you know, in terms of God's goodness. Um, you know, we say he's all in all, if if what we mean is that he, you know, has, you know, condemned some to eternal fire and has glorified himself thereby, that doesn't really sound like God is love anymore. Um, even, you know, having just destroyed them eternally, um, I mean, I would say that sounds a little disproportionate to, um, you know, the magnitude of the transgressions that they incurred. Being finite moral agents, it seems like they could only uh, commit finite sins. I know people are fond of that argument that, you know, God's holiness is infinite and therefore any sin against him is infinite. But that seems to totally neglect the whole dimension of uh, to what extent ignorance is exculpatory. You know, our children... Um, capable of committing infinite sense, uh, offenses against the infinite holy God, uh, if not, then you know maybe ignorance is a mitigating factor for adults too, um, and if they are, you know that also sounds incompatible with God's loving nature. You know, if it's the case that unbaptized infants um, go to limbo uh, or never never see God, etc., that doesn't sound like a maximally loving God. Anyway, I have a whole episode on that argument and why I think it, it fails, the argument that uh, hell is justly infinite because God's uh, dignity or value or moral worth is, is infinite. Um, you know, you can make a compelling case, I think, that that God's goodness and his being love, or being maximally loving, or however you want to put it, requires that that punishment be temporary and corrective rather than sort of infinitely disproportionate um, to the transgression. I know my friend, my Unitarian friend again says, under conditionalism, the, the punishment is finitude itself. It's not infinite. But I would say, no, the finitude is infinite. It's infinite finitude. You know, as distinct from finite finitude, they cease to exist for an interval and then come back into existence, which is actually also incidentally the annihilationist view. It's like they. Die and then they get resurrected, only to die again. So you can say, look, there's a lot at stake. Writing on, you know, whether uh, people can get out of hell. It's it's God's very goodness and and nature, uh, which are at issue. And so we should see a strong motivation, um, you know, for uh, reading the Bible in a universalist way even if um we don't have any particular verse that that establishes that conclusion all by itself or as clearly as we would like and you know at this point a response could be made don't you dare go comparing the uh you know doctrine of universal salvation or apocatastasis with um the trinity because uh the former was you know condemned as a heresy by some council of justinian or something and the latter, you know, has always been attested to by the Holy Spirit, you know, by, by like all Orthodox believers ever since like the Nicene Councils and so on. And um, well, you know, regarding whether universalism or universal salvation as such was condemned as a heresy, that's not so clear. Um, it looks like for sure something called originism or something like originism was condemned as a heresy, but that involved more than just apocatastasis or universal restoration it involved reincarnation and like pre-existence of the soul it was this whole elaborate system and as sort of evidence for the idea that universalism as such was not condemned you know you have Gregory of Nisa, who's a church father who was uh, a universalist and he was never condemned as a heretic but if his view was heretical you know if, if you know if universalism is, is a heresy and he held that view he should have been condemned as a heretic too one can argue. There's other stuff about that council, which is fishy, but nonetheless, you know, there's an argument to be made there that, you know, if universalism is a heresy, you know, then it, you can't hold that view, you know, and if the council establishes that it was a heresy, etc. So, you know, you can have that debate. Um, but, you know, the point I would make about um, uh, this this rejoinder, the point I would make in response to this rejoinder you know, the holy the, you know the the Holy Spirit has essentially ratified the Trinity. Uh, you know since so many people have you know so many Christians believe in it, um, although what they believe in each case is always less clear. you know Usually when you examine people's Trinitarian views closely, they end up being some kind of heresy, but um, regardless, um, uh, you know my my response here is to say, if nobody believed in the Trinity, would it not be biblical? Would it be unbiblical if nobody believed in it? I'm sure the reply would be no. Even if no one believed it, it would still be biblical. And that's all that's at issue here. Is What I'm saying is something can be biblical and and rest on inference and implication. Now, if the claim is simply that um, no minority position within Christianity can be true, then then universalism is certainly ruled out. But, you know, that also sounds like it's begging the question. Anyway, um, I think that I've made nearly all of the points that I intended to make in this episode. Um, So I'm drawing near the conclusion. I want to read something from David Bentley Hart, which I think is very pertinent. Again, it has less to do with the letter of, you know, biblical interpretation and more with the spirit. But then again, if you look at the way that... uh, Jesus and Paul interpreted scripture, it was very often more spiritual than literal, and yet we don't say they had a a low estimation of scripture, they had a very high estimation of it. Anyway, here, here is a quotation from David Bentley Hart. There is an argument against the coherence of the doctrine of eternal perdition that is simpler than any other, and that is incontrovertibly true, and that I think all of us know without realizing we know it most infernalists would dismiss it as trivial or impressionistic or sentimental, and yet its logic is devastatingly irresistible to anyone who will set his or her heart to contemplate it. It is this. The irresoluble contradiction at the very core of the now dominant understanding of Christian confession is that the faith commands us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves while also enjoining us to believe in the reality of an eternal hell Uh, we cannot possibly do both of these things at once. I say this not just because I think it is emotionally impossible fully to love a God capable of consigning any creature to everlasting suffering, though in fact I do think this. I say it rather because absolute love of neighbor and a perfectly convinced belief in hell are antithetical to one another in principle. Really, all our language of Christian love is rendered vacuous to the precise degree that we truly believe in eternal perdition. Love my neighbor, all I may. If I believe hell is real, I cannot love him as myself. My conviction that there is a hell to which one of us might go, while the other enters into the kingdom of God, means that I must be willing to abandon him, indeed abandon every one, to a fate of total misery, while yet continuing to assume that, having done so, I shall be able to enjoy perfect eternal bliss." indeed i must proleptically already have abandoned him to endless pain without hesitation or regret i must must preserve a place in my heart and that the deepest and most enduring part where i have already turned away from him with a callous self-interest so vast as to be indistinguishable from perfect malevolence every soul for itself in the end the ethos of the kingdom is the same as the ethos of hell the very thought tempts one to suppose that Nietzsche was right and that Christianity's talk of charity and selfless love and compassion is often a particularly squalid and pusillanimous charade, dissembling a deep and abiding ressentiment and vengefulness. As I say, the committed infernalist will wave the argument off impatiently, but I think an honest interrogation of our consciences, if we allow ourselves to risk it, tells us that this is a contradiction that cannot be conjured away with yet another exercise in specious reasoning and bad dialectics. Think, can we truly love any person let alone love that person as ourselves, if we are obliged as the price and proof of our faith to contemplate that person consigned to eternal suffering, while we ourselves possess imperturbable, unclouded, unconditional, and everlasting happiness. Only a fool would believe it, but the dominant picture of Christian faith demands that we believe it, and so demands that we become fools. It demands that we ignore the contradiction altogether. It also demands that we become at some deep and enduring level resolutely and complacently heartless. So I mean that's pretty 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 strong. I would ask, you know, who wins the or what wins? The the letter or, or the spirit? And yeah, maybe maybe that's that's just that's just the note that I'll end on. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time.